Hello, everyone. You're listening to Heart of the Matter on Dundalk FM 97.7. My name is Michael Amati. I will be joined by Kevin here uh, shortly, uh, and I'll also be joined by another guest in just a moment, and his name is Doug Van Dorn. He's written a book on the book of Galatians, and we're going to be interviewing him and talking about what is this book about and what can we learn from this book that Paul has written. Well, Doug, uh, let me again thank you for joining us uh, here today and talking about your, your Galatians book. Right now on the program, we're actually going through the book of Galatians, and so that's why I thought it would be uh, really interesting to bring you on as I, I've been using your book uh, to, to, to study and to prepare for this, um, uh, the, the, these programs. But can you tell us just really quickly how this book came about? Uh, I preached through Galatians. I don't know. It's probably been seven, six or seven years ago, I suppose. Mm. And so I, I manuscript out all my sermons, and there was interest in me putting these together for a book. So that's what I just decided to do: is just take what I had preached and put them down for people to be able to read them. So okay, great, great. Can you can you start us off by telling us telling us what is the the overall argument Paul is trying to make in the book of Galatians? Well, um, there's this group of people that are in modern-day Turkey that uh, have become Christians. And there were, you know, uh, in most of the churches that, that he went to, he had a mixture of Jews and Gentiles. So most of the, you know, the natives that are there are going to be the Gentile Christians. But uh, because the Jews are scattered around uh, the world um, in you know, the times of the persecutions and things like that when James was written, and Galatians isn't too far away from that point in time, mm-hmm. uh, these Jews were, you know, converting, uh, and that there seems to have been, uh, you know, a large number of uh, the rabbis, uh, the, kind of the priests that had been scattered around as well. I think this is kind of what the book of Hebrews is about as well. Mm. And um, anyway, uh, they seem to have had a pretty difficult time losing some parts of uh, I guess the ceremonial aspects of of what it meant to be a, a national Jew, and so they started foisting this on the uh, Gentile Christians, especially the the um, you know the idea of circumcising their kids, and this seemed to have been working together with some sort of perverted view that that works, um, good works. Um, obeying the civil ceremonial, you know, all that kind of law in the Old Testament is somehow all tied in together with how a person is saved and and especially justified. Mm -hmm. And Paul comes along and he says, no, justification is not a matter of mixing together works of any kind. It doesn't matter how good they might have been. And in fact, if you do that, then you're you're destroying the gospel. And so he starts off with like this huge condemnation at the beginning of the letter for anybody who's going to preach a different gospel other than this gospel uh, that we're justified, we're declared righteous um, only by faith in Christ and nothing else. And, and if anybody adds to that, you know, let him be, let him be anathema. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, as I've been going through your book, um, you know, behind that and kind of, well, I guess interwoven through all this is, is um, a very supernatural uh, worldview that Paul has that he, he hasn't just placed that on the background and now okay we're strictly going to talk about uh, justification by faith 
but all it's entire all of it is is mixed together. Um, but can you kind of begin by telling us who were the Galatians? Who were the people that he he was talking? Because you had a fascinating discussion, uh, just you know, ta- quoting from Josephus and uh, where these these Galatians came from, or actually where they they went to and who they became. But can you start us off with who who were the Galatians? These are people that seem to have um, migrated from farther to the from the east into that region, and. Um, it's it's I don't know that it's as much the people themselves as it is kind of the history of the place, which is so so strange. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and and that's the supernatural part of this. That when I was writing the book, I thought you know this is kind of a contribution that I have that that might be a little bit unique. Um, mm-hmm. That and part of it's because of the study that I did with the giants, and that I was just coming off of that, and I was really in tune with the supernatural you know, worldview that we find in the Bible. And, and, uh, I was really kind of frustrated with the kind of almost the, just the naturalism that I find in so much contemporary Christianity. Like we've just dumped a lot of the supernatural things that are in the Bible. And we no longer really understand some of the, some of the links, you know, to the supernatural world. We, we de-supernaturalize them. Um, and I think some of that's going on here at the very beginning. So, the strange thing is that this was a land that um, the the traditions say that the that the giants, when they were uh, being kicked out of like the land of Israel mm-hmm. and other places around the Middle East, they actually fled to Galatia, and then uh, they you know they started fighting with the Romans and and they had to flee farther and farther into the outskirts of the known world. So they go up to like France and in Germany, and then they get kicked out of there. They go up into England and. It, and up into Ireland, which we talked about last time yeah. it's on your show. So um, these people were like, uh, you know, they would have known the stories. Uh, they would have known the myths of the Greeks and, and uh, they would have taken them up more, more seriously than we certainly take them in the modern day. And Paul at the very least is playing off some of that. Um, but I think it also, he's, he's getting some of his, his strong language from, really from the supernatural story that uh, I suppose we'll end up talking about during this program. Mm. I did find it interesting that you, you know, as you were quoting Josephus, uh, you know, one of the things about a Kindle books is you can't quote, you can't say what page it's on. All you get are the location. Right. It's, it <laughs> makes it a little more difficult, but you, you're talking about Josephus uh, in this first chapter and you say, uh, Josephus said, Galatia takes its name from the Gauls or the Celts. I just found that fascinating, being where we are here in Ireland, that yeah, here you have a connection exactly. between these individuals or this people in, in what's now Turkey, modern-day Turkey, but they are kind of the, the background history to the ancestors of the Celtic people. Wasn't there something like a meaning of milky white or something That's like that? Right. That's right, because the uh, the Greek word gala means means milk, and so the, it was uh, you had here that the, you know, these were the, these milky white tall, uh, blonde people who lived at the, uh, in, in Galatia. Yeah. And that's actually, you know, that, that's part of the, going back to like the, um, the, um, uh, the Amorites, uh, you can mm-hmm. read this in Egyptian texts that they, they describe them the same way. So this is what, um, Og was, um, of Bashan and mm-hmm. King Sion. They were, um, Amorite kings and then you know then you find them fleeing up farther north and so you get the same kind of descriptions of the people mm, mm. 
You know, Doug, one of the things that you mentioned uh, in your book was uh, Paul's use of angels in, well, in in the book as a whole, but uh, particularly I just want to focus on the, in, the, in that first chapter where Paul writes, uh, beginning in verse 8, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Now, you know, some people might say, okay, well, he's Paul's trying to make a point here, and so he's using hyperbole, but but you don't really see it as hyperbole. You, you, Paul really, literally, uh, is referring to an angel uh, coming and preaching something different than what he himself had preached to them. Yeah, I mean, ab- absolutely. I mean, that this is the tradition that you find um, in the ancient world, that the sons of God, you know, kind of were the civilizers of humanity, and that they you know, brought law to us. And this actually becomes an important part of the argument later in chapter three, where he talks about um, the law being delivered on Mount Sinai um, through angels and then Mm -hmm. also through a mediator, which the mediator doesn't seem to fit um, what Moses is because it seems to be a mediator between angels and God, which Moses wouldn't fit that. So, Mm -hmm. you know, you've got this just weird stuff going on with, um, with these with these um, beings that are you know delivering messages and stuff, and it also kind of reminds me of uh, other places in the New Testament where Paul talks about like the doctrine of demons and those sorts of things. So, yeah. you know, I'm not sure I know how those things were communicated. Right. Uh, you know, it's like through an oracle or uh, you know direct intervention. I have no idea. I've never had that kind of an experience, but I certainly believe that Paul is doing more than just being hyperbolic in his language. Yeah. So do you think that uh, it was the experience among, uh, if not some in Paul's day, that at least in his history, I guess outside of the his use in Galatians 3.19 there, uh, that angels would come and, um, I don't know, uh, if... if preaching a false gospel is the right uh, idea here, but come and they're communicating with, uh, with individuals. Right. I mean, um, so in Paul's day, this stuff didn't seem to be going on in, in the literature that we have the same way that it was in like the really old literature more Abraham's time or even before that. Mm-hmm. So I'm not like, I, like I said, I'm not sure that, that the Galatians would have thought that an angel came into their presence, but they might've thought that, you know, I just don't know. But, mm-hmm. um, the, the clear message is that Paul thinks that, uh, supernatural beings are certainly capable of delivering messages that people can believe and buy into. And his point is that if anybody's going to preach any kind of a message, whether it's a man or an angel, that's contrary to the one that he delivered to them. You know, and he goes right into the to the Judaizers and their circumcising. So, right. um, you know, so he's not he's not saying that necessarily an angel came and did this, but you know, in person. But maybe these guys are in right. league with one. I don't know. <laughs> Doug, you mentioned um, the use of an oracle there. Um, do you think that has something to do with this as well? You know, like um, possession by a demon of of a person and and delivering an oracle in that sense. Ah, boy, that's an interesting question. I mean, I think about the language of, uh, I think it's in early, early chapter three, maybe verse one, he talks about the people being bewitched. He's Mm -hmm. this really weird, weird word that almost like we get the word basculus from it, which is like the evil eye. If you've seen, um, 
Harry Potter and the and the Basilisk, the, the things that it can do, or right, okay. you think about Medusa and her look, and it turns people to stone. You know, there's certainly that's certainly supernatural in terms of you know what he says that's going on. There's some kind of demonic, you know, um, veiling of the eyes, or you know, causing people to believe something. Um, I, I don't know that that they were having you know, going into trances or anything like that. That's not a very Jewish thing to do, but, um, yeah, oracles are, are strange things. I don't know that there's an oracle in the book of Galatians, but. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Chapter three is a, is a very interesting, uh, you know, opening, uh, few verses there when he says, Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? And yeah, that, that word there bewitched so that we kind of, we translate as bewitched, uh, seems to have a reference to giving the evil eye. Right. And what I find interesting is Paul seems to be playing off of that in that verse because he says, you know, who has given you the evil eye? And then the next clause, he says it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. And so he kind of seems to be making a play off this uh, this idea of, you know, has somebody bewitched you, put you under their spell by giving you the evil eye? Yet your eyes have seen Jesus publicly portrayed as crucified. Yeah, that's it's just such a great um, insight that you're looking at there. And um, you, know, you think about how was Jesus portrayed as crucified to their eyes. It wasn't literally through, you know, the eyeball, the physical eyeball. Mm-hmm. It was through the proclamation of Christ through preaching to them. So, you know, that gives you the idea that maybe the bewitching, it's not like somebody's looking at them with a Medusa eye, but mm-hmm. they're giving a, you know, they're giving, they're giving a message that, you know, has a power that is, you know, analogous to the power of the gospel, but it's in an evil way. Mm -hmm. What I found interesting is I was just studying and preparing, uh, going over this, this particular book is that, um, when my wife and I went on our honeymoon, we went to Turkey and, uh, one of my aunts lives in Turkey and she gave my wife a bracelet and on it was a little eye and that eye was supposed to ward off evil eyes. Oh, wow. And so it's just fascinating to me that, you know, all these, these th- thousands of years later, this still, this same concept is still there in, in, in old Galatia, in Turkey. Yeah, in the very same place. That's wild. Yeah, that the, the evil eye is still, still there. And so they needed another eye to, to ward it off, which I just thought was fascinating. Um, really quick, before we go to our ad break, I wanted to ask you back in chapter one, as we're looking at the, you know, the angel who comes and preaches a different gospel, you know, before he gets to that, he he says to the Galatians in verse six, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Um, Could you maybe just talk really quickly about this idea of deserting or abandoning? Because you you had a a very interesting discussion um, in your book on just connecting it to, to various things from, again, the Old Testament, kind of what we talked about last time in the last interview. Yeah, and, and bring up a word like this, um, or bewitched or whatever. The, these are words that Paul seems to be using to, you know, at the very least play off of the supernatural stuff that he's talking about, if not, you know, making even a stronger point, point through them than just a word play. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we read that word turning away and and or deserting we think it's just like a turning away from mm-hmm. but the word you know is used in the old testament to like uh 
talk about um, being abandoned in a way that uh, that might remind you know at least the the Jewish uh, Hebrew speakers there, which are the people that he's really talking to, <laughs> which makes it yeah. even more interesting. Yeah, that uh, you know he's he's using language that would remind them of the Genesis six event and the and the gibberim, the the fall in Nephilim. Yeah. The, the word to desert actually comes from the word nephal, so or it translates it. So when they're seeing that, you know, and it's one word might not do it, but if he starts piling words on top of each other that are all kind of going back to the same idea, yeah, then they're gonna they're gonna get the message in a way that we wouldn't. Right, right, yeah. If it's found it fascinating, um, yeah, you're right. Just kind of that very same thing. You say, for example, I found it curious that the Old Testament word to desert is nafal, which is used to describe the fallen gibberim in Ezekiel 32, 27. And they are laid with the giants that fell of old who went down to Hades with their weapons of war. Or take this one. The New Testament word for a desert is eremos, a word possibly borrowed from Mount Hermon, at the base of which was the worship upon the son of Hermes. And so you, there just seems to be all these... these um, uh, lingu- uh, lexical and maybe etymological relationships between uh, these these uh, fallen giants and uh, you know what he he's bringing up here to these Galatians. Exactly, and I think he does the same thing with the word anathema. Like just uh, you know one or two verses later, mm. uh, it reminds people of that. That word would remind people of Mount Hermon <laughs> huh. uh, and the fall of the Watchers. Uh, that's the word that it's translating there. So it's more than just um, it's more than just being excommunicated, which is bad enough, right. and, or or eternally condemned, which is bad enough. It's that you're actually relating the sin here of preaching a false gospel to the fall of you know the watchers um, in Genesis chapter six. When you're using a word like that, mm-hmm. that's where it comes from. To be devoted to destruction is is the you know that's the um, the Karem, the you know the, the holy wars that that Moses was commanded and Joshua was commanded to undertake in order to get rid of the giants that were in Canaan. Mm. Well, we will be back to talk uh, more with Doug Van Dorn, but we are going to hit our ad break right now. So we will be back right after this. Well, you're welcome back to our show here on How the Matter, and we have people listening to us. From all over the world on uh, the show here, um, you can catch us on the internet, on um, Facebook, Heart of the Matter, on Dundalk FM, and you can also visit our webpage, www.dundalkbaptistchurch.org. And we have people listening to us from all over the United States. We have Phil listening to us up there in Washington State, and others listening to us in Utah, in California, in Mississippi, in Maine. Um, in Massachusetts and also in Michigan, so um, all the M's there in in the U.S. And then we have folk listening to us south of the border in Mexico and Brazil, across the Atlantic in North Africa and other places around the world, um, in China and Australia and others listening to us in um, the Russian Federation as well as Czechoslovakia, in Germany and the Netherlands and Denmark. Some folk listening to us in the UK as well. In uh, the East Midlands, we have Imperator um, and Paulina listening to us in the Midlands of the UK, and Matthew is listening to us in Inver- Inverness. Marinus is listening to us in North Yorkshire, as usual. Coming closer to home, then, of course, we have people listening to us in 
Northern Ireland in Belfast and Lisburn and Temple Patrick and around the Enniskillen area as well. And others listening to us in Donegal and Galway, Limerick, Cork, Leash and Dublin. And then, of course, we have our loyal listeners listening to us on 97.7 FM here around the town. And we have Mark listening to us and others as well. So we do hope you're enjoying the show as we continue to look at the book of Galatians and our special guest, Doug Van Dorn. Doug, let me kind of jump now to, to chapter four, and maybe I can come back to a few things in the earlier chapters. But it, it, I guess one of the one of the the phrases that seems to really kind of puzzle people is this uh, this use of stoicheia, which in here in the ESV they've translated as elementary principles. So in uh, chapter four, verse three. Paul writes, in the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. And then again, he uses that same word uh, later on in verse 9 when he says, But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? So we have this this uh, word stoicheia here. What what do you see this stoicheia what are they referring to? What, what are they? How should we translate them or understand them? Um, well, that word is used. It is used of, you know, the way that NIV translates it there kind of very naturally, naturalistically um, in ancient Greek. But the problem I think that we need to recognize as modern people is that we we've really made this sharp dichotomy between the natural world and the supernatural one. So that if we read, you know, that kind of a just a power or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, we're not reading anything supernatural into it at all. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's not the way that they thought in the old world. Um, you know, things were merged together much more than they are in our mind so that, you know, they could think of something natural, but it's also supernatural at the same time. But um, that said, the word stoichia is also used very deliberately of supernatural powers. So, you know, at, at the time that this was written. So, like, for example, there's a book called The Testament of Solomon that seems to be a, a Christian, kind of early Christian book that tries to pass itself off as a Jewish book. Might have Jewish roots, you know, they're not 100% sure. But in that book, Solomon keeps, like, binding demons and then enlisting them in their service to help build a temple. Hmm. And at one point, uh, these demons say things like this. There's seven spirits that appear before him. And they say, we are the stoichia, the rulers of this world of darkness. So, you know, you've got you've got that that's certainly a possibility. But when I think you combine it with the other supernatural things that are scattered throughout Galatians and it's not just chapter one or, you know, one word here or there. It's really it's part of the underpinning of his whole argument that Mm -hmm. this is all related together. And then, you know, you start thinking about how. it calls it calls these kinds of things gods or in other places Paul talks about there are so-called gods you know in the world and the point right. is that it, the point isn't that not you know that they're not God they don't have the power to hold people in darkness the way that they once did um, but you know they were enslaved to them and the Galatians would have understood that but the through the gospel Jesus has you know um, delivered them from this kingdom of darkness. And so they need to stop going back to the way that those, the older satanic kingdom operated and worked for them uh, with regard to, you know, even moral principles. It's not like those beings are moral less, but 
mm-hmm. but you know they they can go off the deep end kind of in in similar ways that we do you know sometimes through uh you know um strong you know uh use of of the law binding themselves um you know doing things that that Paul talks about in different books so I think that I think those stoichia should be read supernaturally. Okay, so you, would you see then like verse eight there in chapter four is kind of defining uh, what these stoichia are when he says, "Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods." I mean, since you're, you, Paul has been talking about being enslaved to these stoichia, that kind of uh, gives us a, a definition to go off of of what these stoichia are—that they are these beings that are by nature not gods, and yet they are still uh, some type of being. Yeah, so there's, I mean, there's a couple of different ways you can take that. And the, the way that we would normally think of it is, well, they're not gods, so they don't exist or something. But he could be saying that these are not like the highest powers of heaven. They're kind of like more underlings or something, if mm-hmm. you want to think of a hierarchy in the in the other world. Um, and yet they're they're acting like they're enslaved to these creatures, so... Well, we are going to go to our next song now, which is by Sovereign Grace Music, and it is called Behold Our God. Upon his hands, 
there about being and, and Doug we were talking about being enslaved to um, these supernatural beings if you like but in chapter 4 there's a contrast between being enslaved to these uh, basic elements and being heirs of the gospel when we think of slavery Doug we think of a, a very different form of slavery than was around at this time and so how do you see when he says, um, now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he is master of all. How do you understand that in terms of this enslavement that we're talking about? Um, well, that's an interesting question. I don't know why I've given that much thought. I mean, there's a the contrast is between slavery and sonship, right? Yeah. So... Um, the sonship part of this is is really important to understand the background of it, and that also goes back, believe it or not, to Genesis six, because uh, those those beings that fell from heaven in the text are called sons of God, and so they were these ruling beings that uh, 
you know, ruled in, in heavenly places. And then they abandoned that estate, came down here, kind of crossed over, did things they weren't supposed to do and were punished for it. Um, but the idea of being a son of God for them is, is this um, ability to rule um, for God, kind of like little princes. In fact, they're called princes in Daniel. So um, when Paul is contrasting the slavery to the stoichia with being adopted as sons of God, what he's basically saying is that don't you realize that the gospel is – it's not only a, a changing of who you are to bring you into sonship, but it's actually a judgment against the sons of God so that you are being given the title and the position of authority that they were given. And you know, we can go back even farther to Adam in the garden where he's the son of God. And he was actually given that – he was given the same kind of authority, dominion that, that they have, but he was given it over the earth. And what what Adam did is he you know, he blew it. He lost his ability to, to have dominion the way that he was supposed to. And part of the curse is that the sons of God end up ruling over, you know, the nations. And so – the gospel is a really a reversal of that curse and um, in both of those ways in terms of the heavenly beings get judged and the sonship that God gave to Adam through the second Adam is restored so that we, we are brought back to that ability to have dominion. And you know, there's a strange verse that Paul talks about in Corinthians. I know it's not Galatians, but he says, don't you know that we will judge angels? And, you know, that's, that's exactly what what I'm talking about in terms of this worldview. So that's the contrast in the background between the slavery and the sonship. Yeah, and then in verse 7 he says, Therefore you are no longer a slave but a son, and if a son then an heir of God through Christ. That, right. That's a, that's, so what you're saying is that that's even more than just being part of God's family. It's, it's about dominion and rulers r- ruling over um the dominion that God gave Adam in the garden absolutely mm-hmm. yeah it's vital to it's vital to his point I mean to be part of the royal family is to be part of the divine council and uh, that's what the sons of God have in mm-hmm. heaven that's what Adam was originally given a seat mm-hmm. on this council and um then he was basically kicked off of it and and that's a restoration of that relationship um you know, that exists within the family, you know, princes, uh, princes of kings are rulers in their own right. So, mm-hmm. but they, they rule for the king, but they overrule over smaller territories. Mm. Now, we've mentioned several times here, um, you know, this is what the gospel does. We, we just read that Paul, you know, he's, he's telling the Galatians, you know, even if an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we preach to you, let him be accursed. Can you just lay out for us what is the gospel? You know, there, there are people who listen to this show who who may not uh, understand very clearly what we're talking about. What is the gospel? What is the gospel that Paul preached? Well, I think that he he really gets to the heart of that in in chapter three. So after he's talked about who's bewitched you, he goes immediately into that objective work of Christ. So he says that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. And then, so, I mean, that's the act of Jesus that, that, that is the gospel, but then it's received 
by a person in only one way. And that's the problem that the Galatians were having is that they seem to be abandoning that. So he says, um, let me ask you, did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? How did how did you come to accept this message? Did you have to do something in order, order to get God to approve of you? Mm-hmm. Um, or did you just hear the message mm-hmm. and you believed it and you said, yeah, that's true. And I can't believe that he would do that for me. And really, I'm being set free from these you know, things that hold me in slavery and bondage. And and uh, really, and he says, you accepted it that way at first, but now you seem to have, you're abandoning it so that mm-hmm. you're, you're taking works of the law and you're combining it. You're adding it to this message of faith alone. And uh, he, you know, then he goes into his, his whole um, justification of why they have to believe, they have to believe, just believe what they're hearing because that's how Abraham was mm. counted as righteous, was by believing God and that he would do the things that he said he would do through mm. Christ. Well, in about the one minute that we have left here, I'm going to give you a very a hard question to summarize in in a minute here. But you know, a, a lot of this book is about uh, justification by faith alone. Can you give us just a um, just a quick synopsis of what is it that Paul is talking about when he's saying when we talk about justification and how does that relate to the gospel? Yeah, justification is a it's an act of God. It's a declaration of a judge from a bench where um, a person is standing before the bench. He's a defendant. He's standing there on trial for his crimes, and um, basically, as he pleads with the with the court, um, the person is pleading the blood of Christ and saying, "I, I I'll take your terms." Um, and the terms are that I believe that Jesus um, has suffered in my place and he has you know, promised to give me his righteousness uh, um, you know, by being united with him by faith. And so in accepting that kind of plea bargain, um, the judge from the bench then says, all right, I declare you legally not guilty before the court, even though you have sinned and you will continue to sin. Because Jesus has obeyed everything that I want him to obey, and he's done it in your place, and that's the terms I set up, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to declare you not guilty, even though you are guilty. Mm. And, uh, you know, that, that's just, it's, un, it's an unheard of kind of a transaction, and uh, that's why it's called good news. Mm, absolutely. Well, Kevin, um, I don't know about you, but uh, this show seemed more than most to just fly by. It just flew. <laughs> so we want to we thank our, our guest, Doug Van Dorn, for being with us. Thank you so much for joining us again, Doug. Thanks for having me on, guys.